Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Thank you very much, Vicky. Uh, it is great to be here with you uh, today. It feels like coming home often when I come to the Mermaid. I was here uh, for many years before we started the Bethnal Green service. Uh, and I just wanted to say as well before I start, um, Dave alluded to this earlier, just thank you for your generosity in our recent uh, gift day and our recent offering. As many of you know that we are starting a morning service in East London. We've, uh, we started with one child when we planted the service Three years ago, we now have seven, which is, which is all right. We're doing okay. Um, and we've begun the process. We're meeting once a month uh, in East London uh, in the morning. Uh, and some of your generosity will directly go to planting that service. So thank you so much. One of the things that I loved about that day was just the thought of all of us, every service, giving to the whole church and not just giving for what we're doing here uh, or in Bethnal Green, but also blessing the other services. So I just, I love that. I think it's profoundly uh, inspiring. So thank you very much for that. Today, as we continue our series on peace, we are going to be looking at how followers of Jesus, we can have peace in our work and in our rest. I wonder what comes to mind when you think of the word work. Maybe excitement or joy. Maybe dread or anxiety. Every Sunday evening, you might go to bed fearful, as you know, in the morning you are back at it again. It might be even a bit frustrated that Sunday morning we're talking about work and you're reminded about it when you just want some peace. Maybe regret or sadness at missed opportunities, hurtful experiences, or just a general sense of not feeling quite good enough. What comes to mind when you think about rest? Maybe an extra few hours of sleep, or binge-watching Netflix, or a walk in the country, or a few hours away from the kids. The truth is, every one of us is different, and work and rest will bring to mind vastly different emotions and circumstances for all of us. Some of you in this room will be at the start of your career. Others will be leading departments or organizations. Some of you will be working awkward shift patterns. Others will be full-time parents or juggling work and family life. And some will be studying or unemployed or in between jobs. And I'm keenly aware of this. And those things will influence how we approach our work and our rest. And so for a lot of what I'm going to say today, you'll need to apply this to your own context, your own circumstance. And secondly, as a church, we really believe that what you do matters, whether that's in work or in study or in your family. For many of you, it's more than just what you do. It's like a calling. And uh, we want to help and honor that in any way that we can. It's why we care so much about seeing the renewal of every area of the city, not just in the church, and why we've created a whole ministry with the Everything Conference to help you, uh, equip you, inspire you to do just that. This year is November the 9th. It's going to be a great day in, up in Marlebone. Uh, you can get a ticket for £15, £10 off the door price uh, for this month only. Do book on. It's going to be a great day. But before we get stuck into this subject, I think there's a couple of assumptions that we need to look at and get clear on when it comes to work and rest. Firstly, paid work is not the only kind of work. Uh, try telling a full-time mum or dad that the only form of work is employment. I see what happens. I dare you. <laughs> And secondly, some of us will see work and rest as opposite, rivals even. Rest is good and work is bad, or vice versa. We might think we need to work as much as possible, achieve as much as we can in the time that we have, and we'll rest when we're retired or dead. Or we can have the opposite view, that work is just a necessary evil that we have to do in order to get by. I think that's a really unhelpful paradigm for how we see work and rest. Because rest and work are good things. 
In fact, to truly rest is not possible without work, and work is not appropriately done without rest. Both are needed if they are to be, te- uh, to be what they were created to be. And God instilled this balance into creation itself. At the end of Genesis 1 and start of chapter 2, it says this, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that, that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in, in creation. In these passages, we read that God created this rhythm and, of work and rest for us to follow by modeling it himself. Diana Butler-Bass draws on the connection between God's rhythm and ours. She says, Our bodies move to a rhythm of work and rest that follows the rhythm originally strummed by God on the waters of creation. As God worked, so shall we. As God rested, so shall we. Working and resting, we who are human are in the image of God. Now, not only is there a rhythm to our work and our rest, there's also a relationship. According to this passage in Genesis, God finished creation on the sixth day, but it says he finished his work on the seventh day. I'm not sure if you noticed that, on the day of rest. It almost seems paradoxical, but I think the implication for us is actually quite beautiful. Work is never complete without rest. They act as this rhythmic pattern for us to follow. We work and we rest. And in Scripture, this hinges on the seventh day. This rhythm hinges on that seventh day, or as it's commonly known, the practice of Sabbath. Sabbath is a principle throughout Scripture that I believe, if we learn to be obedient to, has the power to transform both our work and our rest. But not only that, it has the resources to bring us into the presence of God like very few other things. A gift that God has given us that grounds us as individuals and unites us as a community, despite our different life stages and circumstances. Something that gives life to us and acts as a sign of the grace of God to our restless world. And I have no idea what you think of when you hear the word Sabbath, but my experience has been that there is a lack of clarity about what the Sabbath actually is. Either maybe it's, it's no longer relevant, relevant to us today, or that actually gets in the way of the work that we want to do, or even our service to God because of all the things we want to do for him. One pastor made this interesting observation when it comes to Sabbath uh, in church life. He said, there are nine commandments that if I choose to break, I might lose my ministry over. But if I did not keep a Sabbath day, I would probably get a raise. The Sabbath is the one commandment we seem to have forgotten, despite, it is the, despite the fact that it is the only commandment that begins with the word, remember. And this is definitely true of my own experience. Up until last year, I never really took this seriously myself. And this is something that as I've begun to study and read about and explore the practice of Sabbath, it has become not just essential in my approach to work and rest, but in experiencing the power of Jesus to replenish, to restore, and to speak into my life in a way that I've not experienced before. This is not something that I should do. It's now something that I have to do. And if I was to define the practice of Sabbath, I would say this. The Sabbath is an entire day set aside every week to stop working so that we can rest and delight in God's creation and his presence. I think this practice is particularly important for us in this city, a city that's full of potential, prosperity, and success. Chances are most of us in this room move to London because of work. For many of us, we can be at work 24-7. We carry it around with us in our pockets. And the temptation to check our emails or to work at any hour is so compelling and difficult to resist. 
And on social media, we see daily portrayals of what the good life is that are often as the result of wealth and prosperity, creating in us this desire for what we don't have or a disappointment because of what we can't afford. And the great irony with this is that often the things that we aspire to most in those moments isn't actually work, but, but rest. We see people wearing trendy clothes in a Scandi coffee shop or lounge, drinking a hipster cocktail or a cup of coffee, whatever it might be for you. Maybe that's just maybe what I think. I'm from <laughs> East London after all, so can't blame me. Um, but one of the dangerous narratives of this system is that it is aspirational. You can get this life if you work that bit harder or you're a tad more successful or you work that little bit more, or if you could earn that little bit more. This could be yours. And philosopher Bing Chul Han, in his book, The Burnout Society, he describes our culture as an achievement society, where the West is directed by this word, can, perfectly exemplified by Obama's campaign slogan, Yes, We Can, that proves so successful. Freedom, opportunity, and choice are some of our biggest cultural values, and the cultural narrative of our time is one of ultimate freedom, where anything is possible. We can do it all. We can have it all, and we can achieve it all. And as Chulhan writes, it's become a cultural subconscious, uh, and, it's, and our, our whole culture and society is built around this idea. We are in an achievement society. And this mindset has even crept its way into our rest and leisure. We have apps that tell us the quality of our sleep, how many steps we counted, how much time we've looked on our phone. When I, look, when I worked as a news app designer, uh, we would even try to instill some kind of achievement into the product. For us, it was just to read a certain amount of articles, you know, the kind of top 10 articles that you get in apps. That's purely to make you read more, come back to the app, and give you a sense of achievement. This culture of achievement has infiltrated every part of our lives. And so when it comes to work in a culture that sees achievement as one of its highest social values, there is this assumed mindset that we can achieve anything we want to. And we even tell our kids that they can be anything they want to be if, as if it's purely down to a choice that they make themselves alone. Now, I think there are two uh, dangers with this. The first has to do with our identity. In a culture that says you can achieve anything, what happens if you don't? What happens if you strive for all that you dream for, but it doesn't work out? What happens if it turns out that, no, you can't? You don't get that job interview, or you're not as successful as your friends, or your children are becoming everything that you hoped they would be. If you don't achieve what you'd hoped for, it can have catastrophic, catastrophic implications for how we see ourselves, our emotional and mental health, and our relationship to work. And the second danger is that it can redefine the purpose of our work. If the purpose of our work is achievement itself, then where does it end? And where are the boundaries? Is the purpose of our work really about achievement and success and prosperity in order for us to get the good life, or is it something else? As an example of this, there's growing evidence that companies that offer unlimited holiday, where the employee gets to decide how much time they should take off, Dave, take note, actually results in people taking less time off because of the guilt and the fear of falling behind their colleagues. And both of these ideas where our work informs our identity and skews our purpose can lead to overwork and alter that balance and rhythm of our work and our rest. If achievement defines who we are, we'll overwork to achieve it. And if achievement defines the purpose of our work, there are no boundaries in place to stop us striving to achieve. And as a result, burnout is becoming a symptom of our generation, even those who love what they do. A recent study by Cambridge University found that nearly half of all employees who are moderately to highly engaged in their work were also exhausted and ready to leave. 
As one author put it, we have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. It gets better, don't worry. (laughs) But I wonder if you can relate to any of this. I wonder whether there are people in this room who, as Lars says when he talks about steps, are sick and tired of being sick and tired. In Matthew 11, Jesus Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, if you're like me, you will read those words or hear those words, and you will long for that rest. But what I find interesting about that passage is that Jesus doesn't say that he will take the yoke off. It's a suggestion in this passage that there is something for us to do, but one that does not weigh us down. And we see throughout the Gospels that Jesus had this rhythm of work and rest, despite all of the incredibly important things that he had to do. He knew when to work and he knew when to rest. He would often go to solitary places, either alone or with his community, to rest. And so if Jesus is offering us this rest, how do we enter into it and how do we experience it and how does that affect our work? And for followers of Jesus, I believe that it's God's intention for us to build our approach to work and rest upon the practice of Sabbath. Just to give some context, uh, the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments, uh, which are recorded in Scripture in two places, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. If we take a look at the slide, you'll see that the first three commandments are to do with our relationship to God, and the commandments 5 to 10 are to do with our relationship with each other. But the fourth commandment is different. The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath. And it's often called a bridge commandment as it, as it bridges those two sections and it relates both to our relationship with God and our relationship to each other. And this is also the only commandment which includes a significant change from Exodus to Deuteronomy, a change that has so much to teach us uh, when we think about applying the practice of Sabbath in our culture today. Both passages start with the command to keep the Sabbath holy. Six days we are to work and one day we rest. But the change is in the reason why. In Exodus 20, it says this, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. In Deuteronomy 5, it says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Why the change? The principle of Sabbath stays the same, but the reason why changes, how come? Just to give some background, uh, the commandments in Exodus were given directly to the people of Israel who had just left Egypt, a people who were born into slavery and, with the exception of Moses, had lived as slaves their whole lives up to that point. So they would have no framework for how to live as free people, uh, no longer under the tyranny of slavery, but under the gift of grace and rest and a redeemed view of work. They would need to learn how to be free, but also how to be human. And so Moses takes them back to the creation story. This is who you are. You are made in the image of God, a God who loves you and thinks you are very good, who made the world full of his glory for you to enjoy and cultivate, a God who worked for six days but rested on the seventh to enjoy what he had made with his creation. God creates both work and rest, showing us that it is good to work, but there is also a day to rest and enjoy God and his creation. And I think that would have been mind-blowing for the people that had just left the tyranny of slavery. But then in Deuteronomy, Moses is speaking to Israelites around 40 years later, just before his death. And the whole book is, is almost like a final teaching uh, before, uh, given to them about how they should live and who they were. 
The previous generation, those who had lived in Egypt, had died, and now a new generation of Israelites who had never experienced uh, the slavery of Egypt were about to enter the promised land. But instead of recalling the creation story, the appeal is to remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. In Exodus, Moses reminds them of Eden and Deuteronomy of Egypt. For the Israelites in Exodus, they needed to learn what it meant to be human. But for the Israelites in Deuteronomy, they needed to remember what it meant to be a slave. And the difference and the change, I think, is fundamental to how we view work and rest. So firstly, let's take a look at Egypt. At the end of Genesis, we read that before the Israelites were enslaved, Egypt was a prosperous place. But because of this desire to increase what they had and also keep hold of what they had, they forced the Israelites into slavery. And this desire is perfectly personified by Pharaoh himself. Just look at the the desire for more and more and more. And that's just in one chapter. He's always wanting more. He's never satisfied, never finished, never finding rest, never finding peace. And so we have Pharaoh, a slave to accumulation and desire, and the Israelites, slaves to Pharaoh and his economic system. And so for the Israelites about to enter the promised land, they were going to find themselves in a place, Scripture tells us, flowing with milk and honey, meaning that there will be an abundance of livestock and vegetation and ultimately potential. Potential for them to start a new life together as the people of God and new Eden. But with that potential for good also comes with it the potential for great harm. At that point in this story, they had to rely on God for everything as they wandered through the desert. And now they were about to enter a land with the potential for huge amounts of wealth and prosperity. But with that, selfishness, greed, and a reliance on created things, not the creator. Walter Brueggemann, in his book, Sabbath's Resistance, says, The new land will work so well that Israel will think they can manage on their own. They will be tempted to autonomy, without due reference to Yahweh. And the reason they will be tempted by autonomy is that the new land will make them inordinately prosperous. Moses knows that prosperity breeds amnesia. The Israelites entering the promised land needed to remember that to be a slave to achievement, prosperity, and success is to be a slave to restlessness. It's like being back in Egypt. And so for those who had never experienced the tyranny of slavery or that system, the warning is to remember Egypt. Remember that you are not slaves. And remember what happened when a system's desire for more and more and more became a system of oppression. Remember what idolizing wealth has the potential to do. Remember there was a time when your ancestors had no choice but to work. Work because of a leader who wanted more and more and more. Don't be like that. That is not who you are. That is not who you are meant to become. Don't do to others what Egypt did to you. And this is so important for us, I think, as followers of Jesus. Because in so many ways, I think our culture can look a lot like Egypt. A culture that is restless, both for the oppressor and the oppressed. In this city, there is the potential for us to achieve so much, yet completely miss out on the life that God created us to live by becoming either a slave to achievement, accumulation, and desire for more, or by forcing others, whether intentionally or not, to become a victim of that system. And I find it remarkable that God's antidote for this temptation is a day. If you want to be free from the tyranny and temptation, keep the Sabbath. Brueggemann goes on to say, the Sabbath is a bodily act of testimony to alternative and resistance to pervading values and the assumption behind those values. The Sabbath is a physical and timely way of saying that my life is more than my work and it is more than what I achieve. 
and that I will trust in God for my work and use the Sabbath as a weekly antidote and reminder to the temptation of placing our work and our achievement before God. William Wilberforce is often rightly portrayed as one of the heroes of the Christian faith and of British society, a man who gave his life to end the slave trade. But what many of us won't know is he had a deep and profound love for the Sabbath. He wrote the following in his diary, Blessed be God for this day of rest, wherein earthly things assume their true size and comparative insignificance. Ambition is stunted, and I hope my affections in some degree rise to things above. One of the temptations and excuses we can have when it comes to the Sabbath is that the work we're doing is so important that we can't afford to rest. There's not enough hours in the day or days in the week. But here we have Wilberforce, someone with a deep, someone who gave so much and did so much for our nation with a deep and foundational love for the Sabbath. I'm sure that Wilberforce was keenly aware that in order to end the slave trade, he needed to be free from the tyranny of slavery, uh, slavery to achievement himself. He even reflected on seeing some of his friends uh, burn out, saying, with peaceful Sundays, the strings would never have stepped as they did from overtension. In this short observation, Wilberforce implies that of all the great things that he did and accomplished in his life was not in spite of the Sabbath, but because of the Sabbath. And as followers of Jesus, the Sabbath is a weekly reminder that who we are is more important than what we do or what we can achieve, that our relationship with God is more important than our work for him. And we see this played out in the creation story, in the creation of Sabbath itself in Eden. One of the most striking aspects of the creation story is that humanity's first full day in Eden was a day of rest. The Sabbath was creation's seventh day, but it was our first. The foundation of our existence comes from a place of restful presence with our creator. Can you imagine that? The very first thing before we got to work was to be with God and enjoy his presence and his creation. Instead of living for the weekend, as followers of Jesus, we live from the Sabbath. We work from rest, not rest from work. The Sabbath was a day completely unearned, and it was the first sign to humanity of the character of God. Creation was a gift. God's presence is a gift, completely unearned. We do not need to work for it. It is ours. And this is hugely significant for us. The Sabbath is not only a time for us to rest. It is a weekly, holy reminder of God's love for us. That his primary desire for us is relationship. He wrote it not just in the fabric of time, but in the story of salvation itself. The, the Sabbath is a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus, who loved us before we even knew who he was or what he had done for us. That no amount of work or achievement can attain his love because we already have it. It is, it is ours, it's his gift to us. An emotionally healthy leader, Pete Scazzaro, describes it like this. Sabbath is the one day of the week I most believe and live out of, a fundamental truth of the gospel. I do nothing productive, yet I am utterly loved. That's why I believe that the Sabbath is the only thing that God describes in the creation story as holy. Not the earth, not the sky, the water, not the animals, not even humanity. They were all good, but the Sabbath is holy. Because it brings us into the reality of knowing who we are and who we are loved by. It wasn't a place that God made holy in creation, but a day. In Deuteronomy, the Sabbath provides a reminder that work is not our God. In Exodus, the Sabbath leads to the redemption of work and an invitation to rest. And so the question for us today is, where do we want to live? In Egypt or in Eden? Just to clarify, I'm using Egypt as a literary tool, literary tool. I, I've never been to Egypt. I heard it's lovely. You get, you, get, you get my point. 
if you're Egyptians here, we love you. You're so welcome. <laughs> Do we live with a tyrannical view of work, restless and lacking in peace, or a redeemed one, where work and rest come together to create the rhythm of life that God instilled at creation? And so how can you apply this to your own life. Uh, before uh, I do that, a few things to say. Firstly, if you're not practicing a weekly Sabbath right now, it may take time before you feel like you are getting it right. Uh, but there is so much grace for us when we start to apply some of the practices of Jesus in our own life. Um, often we can have a picture of what we want to be doing or who we want to be becoming and get frustrated that we're not there right away. Uh, but just like any spiritual practice, a large part of it is actually in the practicing. It's in the training. A.J. Soboda, in his book, Subversive Sabbath, Subversive Sabbath, says that learning how to fail at Sabbath is a critical part of learning how to Sabbath. And I found that to be true myself. I would set uh, such lofty goals um, about how to achieve the right Sabbath, if you notice the irony, you know, how much time I'll not spend on my phone or how many books I'll read or whatever it is, and just completely miss the point of the day. And you might particularly need to, uh, time to figure this out if you are doing this with a spouse or with family, you might need to start with half a day or whatever it might be to get you started. And secondly, I realized that my experience might be very different to yours. And I would just hate it if you were sat there thinking that I have no idea how busy you are and what your life is like. And I realized that we all have different responsibilities that can affect our freedom to practice a weekly Sabbath. I understand that. But God's intention for you is to flourish, not burn out. And we would love the opportunity for you to talk with you and pray with you if that is how you are feeling right now. And there's so much more that can be said on this subject um, that I've not been able to look at today. Um, like, what, what, is it important what day you take as your Sabbath? It's not, in my view. Uh, but here are a few books that might help you on your journey. Sabbath is Resistance by Walter Brueggemann, which I've quoted from. Sub Subversive Sabbath by A.J. Saboda as well, and The Sabbath by Abraham Herschel as well. Um, there's also some great resources at practicingtheway.org if you're in a connect group or thinking about starting a connect group. Uh, there's a whole uh, study on the Sabbath, which you may want to do as well. Uh, so do check that out if, that, if that's of interest. Before we finish, just some thoughts on how we apply the practice of Sabbath. And I want to suggest that there are four key principles that may help you to do this. They are to stop, to rest, to delight, and to worship. Firstly, to stop. Stop working, stop wanting either success or material things, and stop worrying. And this act of stopping is not actually as easy as it sounds. It takes trust to stop. Trust that God is on your side and he cares more about you and the things that you care about and this world than you do. Swoboda says that the Sabbath is an act of obedience to God to give up for one day, carrying the burdens of the world and simply letting things be the way they are. When we enter the Sabbath, we become humbled by the fact that God cares more for the broken world than we do. His lordship and care for the world do not cease when we choose to take a day to rest. We cannot help the world the way we are supposed to without moments of respite and holy indifference when we turn our attention and compassion to the living God. Whatever work might be for you, the Sabbath is a day to put down your tools or turn off your computer or your phone or whatever it might be uh, just to stop and make that part of your weekly rhythm. Secondly, to rest. The Sabbath is a weekly reminder that we are to come to him as weary and burdened people and rest. Just a really silly example uh, from me. For me, I love to rest uh, by reading, uh, but I realized that I shouldn't really read any books on, like, on church leadership on my Sabbath. These books are really important to me and my job, um, but 
it, just, it meant my mind would be working and not actually resting. It would, it would go to all the things I needed to do rather than just rest in God's presence. And for you, reading a book on church leadership might not feel like work. In fact, you think that kind of book might actually help you rest, maybe even put you to sleep. Um, but if that's the case, that, just read away. Feel free. Um, but on the Sabbath, we don't kind of give up those dreams or ambitions to improve in what we're doing. But instead, we, we give them to him. I trust him with them, or at least that's what I should do. By stopping and resting, I give all of those dreams and ambitions over to Jesus. How about in your life? The Sabbath is a a gift for us to stop and to rest and to trust him with everything. And for you, it might be as simple as just sleeping in or taking a nap or turning your notifications off. For those of you with families, it might need uh, you to think creatively about how you incorporate rest into family life and balancing that with times of solitude as well. But there's freedom for you to shape this around your own mind and body and circumstance. But the principle is to stop working and start to rest. Thirdly, to delight. And this is where I think many of us, at least in my experience, have missed out on what the Sabbath can truly be. It is not just a a time to stop, but it is also a time to start. To start delighting in God's creation. Just as humanity had the invitation to do in Eden. And the poet Gerald Manley Hopkins wrote famously that the world is charged with the grandeur of God. And the Sabbath is a day to to delight in God's creation and his grandeur. God didn't rest on the seventh day because he was tired. God doesn't need rest in the same way that we do. He rested so that he could enjoy what he had created with his creation, with us. What brings you delight? What brings you joy? What brings you life? What replenishes you and restores your soul, God has given you the gift of a day every week to enjoy these things. Will you take it? For you, it might be great food, or spending time walking in the country, or being with friends, or exercising, or spending time with family, whatever it is. Sabbath is a day to start enjoying creation and doing what brings you life and restores your soul. And finally, the Sabbath is a day for worship. And I don't mean this necessarily in the context of what we're doing right now, a worship service, but actually through all of the previous three steps, by stopping and giving over our worries and concerns to him, by resting in his presence and delighting in the good things of this world and his creation, that, all those things are worship. And they will lead us both with the space and the time to be with him and rest in his presence, but also to thank him for all that he has done and the gift that he has given us. That is worship. And I've just found it remarkable in my own life. Just having that as your kind of mindset on a Sabbath, it does just change everything. It changes your perspective on the weather, on the day, on food, on family, on friends, on everything. It changes your perspective. Whatever might lead you to do that, why don't you try keeping a Sabbath day? It might lead you to pray or to sing or just to carry throughout the day that thankfulness in your heart. Whatever it is for you, Sabbath is a day to worship and enjoy God's presence. Just to come into land and if the band uh, want to come up. My heart for us as a church is that we would take this call on our lives to work for the renewal of the city. With all the dreams that we have uh, for our work and our families and our communities. But all of those things would flow from uh, being in God's presence and the rest and the peace that God brings. That we would work hard but do all that from a place of deep communion with God that our doing for God wouldn't trump our being with God. And not only that, that our restless culture will look at our lives, free from the slavery of achievement and oppression, and not just see what we do in this world uh, as a witness to God, 
but also the peace and rest that we have in our heart, mind, soul, and body will speak of the one who has given us that peace and that rest. If we are to be a witness to the, the people around us, then I believe we need to take what Scripture says about Sabbath seriously. Our lives as followers of Jesus should be how life should be lived. Therefore, therefore, the Sabbath comes as a sign to our restless culture. Go to Jesus and he will give you rest and peace. And if you are here, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, and you long for that peace that Jesus offers us, firstly, I just invite you to start practicing the Sabbath. Start incorporating that into your weekly life. You might need to say no to some things. You might need to say yes to other things. But secondly, we'd love to pray for you after this or during this next song. Please do come forward if you would like. Perhaps right now you feel like you are a slave to achievement, where your identity and your purpose is being shaped by your work and not being formed by God. We would love to pray for you as well. Or perhaps you are just exhausted and close to burning out. Maybe you've heard everything I've said today and you just feel trapped, and like you can't put any of this into practice. And I felt this morning, actually, that there may be some people here that are actually having sleepless nights because of work, the anxiety and the fear the work is bringing. We would love to pray for you today. Please don't go without speaking with someone, either the welcome team or the prayer team or someone in your connect group. This is what church is about. We are, we are here to get behind each other and help each other, point each other to Jesus. Why don't you stand? And I'll just pray for us and then we'll worship. Yeah, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the peace and rest that you offer to us. Thank you for the gift of a Sabbath. Thank you that it speaks of your love for us, that your desire for us is relationship. That is first and foremost in your plan for our lives, that we would have relationship with you. And God, I just pray for anyone here who, who feels exhausted or burnt out, who feels like they're trapped, that they're not experiencing the life and the rest and the peace that you offer. Lord, we just pray your Holy Spirit will come now and you would fill them with that rest and that peace. You would fill them with the knowledge that you love them, that you are for them. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this moment now as we sing. Amen.